Welcome to His Hands, His Feet podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Camp. You know, everyone that lives a life on mission or wants to live a life that has a purpose needs the help and support of others around them to walk that out successfully. But you know, the, the tendency that we have is to do it all on our own. We I don't know what it is that's in us, but you know, you'll hear or we'll feel that we don't want to burden anyone else when we're having challenges. When we are the ones that made the commitment, whether it's a, to be a foreign missionary or a ministry leader or a, a volunteer with a ministry, ministry or on staff at a church or foster an adoptive parent, whatever it is, that I guess we have the mindset, I made the decision to walk this path, to fulfill this mission, and so it's up to me to make it work. And really, that just doesn't work. <laughs> we need other people to come alongside us, whether they are people who are friends and family that support us in that journey, or it's a, a mentor or a coach or counseling that we seek out. We need that. And I found that to be true in my own life, and especially as I've become a foster and adoptive parent, uh, Danielle and I are constantly looking for support in lots of different ways to help us walk that out and to avoid becoming a family that's in crisis. And whenever that happens, then all we do is not only harm ourselves, but we harm those who God has called us to to serve. And so I've invited Amy Curtis and Jennifer McCollum, who both work for Buckner in their counseling center, and they're going to dive into what it looks like to walk alongside a post-adoptive family. And that is kind of that window of time, or really it's not a window, it's right, it's, it's for the rest of that family's life, but there's not a whole lot of support and resources that go into that. And that is when a, a family will, once they have adopted a child or children, they will become isolated and they will pull away from those that can provide support. And those that were excited and, and all into the placement, whether it was foster care or a domestic or international adoption, it's just a time to celebrate with family and friends that will come alongside a, a family that's a, adopting a child. But then again, once that child's adopted, people move on. And so we have to be proactive, both as people who support families and as families who have adopted, to make sure that we don't end up being a family that's in crisis. This is a great conversation with Amy and Jennifer, who give some valuable information and also resources about how not only as you as a, an adoptive family can avoid becoming one that's in crisis, but also if you are someone that uh, knows an adoptive family, it can be a wake-up call for you to re-engage if you need to and become part of their support. Well, I'm excited to be here on this podcast with Amy and Jennifer, who both work for Buckner, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves a little bit more here in a second, but I sat in on a, a workshop at a conference a while back that Amy was leading, and it was very good information about working with families uh, post-adoption. And so I know this is an area that many families um, struggle and can become isolated and just are looking for resources and things to do. And then also people that are, so to speak, wrapped around them that are family, friends, support, uh, a lot of times don't know how to help. And so I'm hoping that we're able to dig into that some. I wanted to give you a chance to, to introduce yourself, but welcome, Amy and Jennifer. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Hi there. I'm Jennifer McCallum. Um, I'm an LPC for Buckner, a post-adoption counselor. I um, work primarily with all, well, all members of, of the triad. We serve um, adoptive families who might be you know, struggling a little bit and some searching and reunion and all, all different, you know, as, aspects. And so um, our main goal is, is just to, to really ensure the, 
the well-being of, of our children and and that our families are provided for and that their needs are met. Well, that's good, Jennifer. You know, you mentioned you used that term triad, and I think most that are listening know what that means, but would you define that real quickly so that everyone knows exactly what you're talking about? Sure. That um, includes our, our birth parents who, who make the decision to, to place um, a child for adoption. It includes adoptees and um, adopted persons and then also our adoptive families, yeah, adoptive cool. parents. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer and Amy. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what your role is there at Buckner. Well, I'm Amy Curtis, and I'm the Director of Counseling for Beckner Children and Family Services. And I've been doing foster care and adoption work for probably um, 33, 34 years. And just absolutely fell into it. I think it it's, mm-hmm. was a very divine process. I mean, I think I'm an adopted person and swore that I'd never work in this field. And here I am, 34 <laughs> years later, working in this field. But really, as, as you go through it and you start working with families through placement or um, even if you're working for Child Protective Services, which I did through investigations and removals, you just start to see so many more complex issues. So every step has just taken me to a different place, and I just um, have been open to wherever God's led me. And I think that's where, in the last probably 10 years, he's really led me, is trying to just learn as much as I possibly can. And I know I'll never know everything, and we'll never be the end-all, be-all but just to continue to learn about how to support families in crisis. And I think it's been, um, it's just been so eye-opening to me to see all the different avenues and all the different aspects. And, and I love people. I love all people. I love the, uh, all the, the birth parents, the adopted persons, the um, adopted parents. So there's no member of, of the triad, as Jennifer said, that I don't feel a connection and a heart for and I think that's something that um, I, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there that I think is sometimes missing in a lot of the different post-adoption resources available is that I think you'll find somebody that is very much aligned with one member of the triad or another. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, one thing that just really drives my passion is that I think those barriers need to come down a little bit because we're all coming very humbly to where we are at this moment. And, and without that, Without without my faith, I mean, everybody has their own motivation and their own religious beliefs and, and their their own family experiences. But where I come from, I just feel like everything is systemic. If one area is moving well, other areas are going to move well as as in addition to that. But it's a struggle in the adoption process because you're coming together with very little information about one another, mm-hmm. and yet trying to figure out and navigate all these relationships and become an aligned system. And um, I'm just passionate about trying to build that system to be the most functional it can. Yeah, I love it. And I happen to agree with you on that. You know, in today's conversation, you know, at that conference, your topic or your talk was about supporting families in crisis. So, you know, we are going to focus on that piece of the triad and that being the adoptive families. And as we all know, we know as we're talking here that families go through a lot of training required to by the state if they're going to adopt through foster care, especially to be, you know, have hours of classwork and a lot of times books that they need to read before they ever foster or before they ever adopt. And then after they adopt, if they're not still, say, you know, if they're foster parents, if they're still not in that world, then then they're kind of like just, hey, good luck and see, mm-hmm. you, see you down the road. I, I think y'all yeah. see that a lot, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And we know from research that most families will go into crisis five to 10 years after placement. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the reason when I look at the statistics for adoption over the last 15 years, 17 years really, um, I I can see how we're suddenly seeing this increase in the number of families in crisis, but we don't have the available resources because over the last five years, placements have decreased so much, at Mm -hmm. least nationally now domestically placements have increased from foster care, but not necessarily domestic infant adoption or from international adoption. So you just have a lack of resources, but you have an influx of families in need. Uh, I totally agree. And that's as a layperson and as a peer that, you know, interacts with families, I see it all the time as well. So I know you guys that are in the professional side of things see a lot. Can we touch on to kind of get the conversation going a little bit about that? What are some red flags that you see? When you see families struggling, what really highlights that struggle? What are those red flags that you notice and, and respond to? Can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. we're, yeah, we're, yeah, yes. We're both ready to jump in, I think, on this. <laughs> what happens is, yes, you're right. I think families, um, adopted families, foster families, feel, look, you've, you've already put me through the ringer. You have asked me every question you can possibly ask. You've asked me to read all these books. You've asked me to do this training. And so when they get to the, the point of, crisis, a part of their hearts are already a little depleted. Their minds, bodies, and spirits are already a little exhausted. So I think going into it, um, the nurture piece is missing just a little bit from from their community. Maybe they've isolated themselves from the church, maybe even in their marriage, maybe in their family relationships. Anger is starting to build where that isolation you know, takes over, then there's resentment. You know, who has left me behind? Who didn't support me? Um, what did I not know? How did I not know this? Even if it's self-anger. I mean, there's just this um, underlying resentment about what's happening. And then that resentment gets focused to the child. You know, if, if mm. they just do this, right. then this would be okay. And so I think when I start to hear those things, and I've always told every family that I've ever worked with, so if anybody's listening that I've worked with them, they probably heard this, and they'll roll their eyes. <laughs> but I always say, call me before you lose your compassion. And the reason for that is I, it's hard to retap into that compassion. We can do it, but it just takes a lot of work. And that's self-work. I can't make a child tap into your compassion, but I can get you there. And so, but, but it's better if you're calling me beforehand so we could start to really see things clearly and those misunderstandings and those resentments don't build to the point where it's harder to break down those walls that have come up. Jennifer? Well, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And that, that's really the hard part is we don't often get those, those calls ahead. I think what I see the red flags often People are busy. Families are busy, and they have so many activities and things going on. And what I see often happening is, is once there's a breakdown or, or things going on at, at school, you know, children struggling maybe with behavioral challenges. That's often when I'll begin to hear from parents saying, "Hey, we, we need some support. What what do we do now in this case?" It, so it's I think Amy's absolutely right. Kind of of letting us be there to walk, you know, with you, support you before you're, you know, in that crisis and not sure sure who to turn to um, for support is what's important. That's good. Anything you want to add to that before I move on to another question that, that segues in my mind too? 
Well, the one thing that I want to kind of just tap on, because I'm a huge attachment and neurobiology geek, mm-hmm. research, and I love um, learning more about these two processes and how they're intertwined. And I, I hear a lot of families come in very defensive mm-hmm. because they're, um, they feel like immediately the focus is going to be on them. What did they do wrong? And I, and I cannot emphasize enough that when we go through stress, our attachment system and our trauma system or um, our stress response, it doesn't even have to be a trauma system, are impacted. They just are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even have a, um, a something happen at work where one of those two things is not impacted in some way when there's a crisis at work. And so I think it's important for parents to be open to the discussion and not see that as blame. Mm-hmm. Because every single one of us goes into a crisis with fight, flight, or freeze. But it's, it's our attachment system and our stress response that teaches us and kind of conditions that brain that, you know, what fires together, wires together. Right. It teaches our brain how to respond in those moments. And so I'm trying to get parents, I'm trying to disarm their fear and trying to connect with them at the same time. And I think sometimes that can be seen as moving in too quickly. So I just want to throw those two things out there because I think families see think that that's a, a blame issue when it's actually a stabilizing issue for a family. It's a place where we need to get them to a good balance in those two areas to be able to work on the deeper issues. Does that make sense? It totally does because you know, listening to you through the, the grid or lens of, of being a parent and she was, I think any parent, whether it's a, of a biological child or an adopted child or a foster child, if something's pointed out that maybe can be changed in the way that we parent, our, our initial reaction is defense, you know. And, and especially if in the case of many families today that foster and adopt, they do get some, some pretty good training if they open themselves up to it. But then when you're in the midst of parenting, it can be hard to apply those things that you've learned. And that can create a defensiveness or even this sense of, oh, no. I'm supposed to be helping my child heal and all I'm doing is, is messing them up more, you know? And so I totally, it totally makes sense getting past that defense mechanism that I think is just a natural response that we have is so it's, it's important. So that's good. Yeah. And, and I just want to use this as an example. Like if your child, if your teenage son called you at two o'clock in the morning and they're out, your heart rate, everything is going to go up. It's just a natural response. But for a parent who's doing, having, getting those kind of calls or that kind of escalating those behaviors that just create that same stress system over and over again every day, right. it, it's so logical that their own stress response would be depleted or mm-hmm. impacted. I mean, it just, you just can't live at that high level of inten- intensity for that long. Yeah, it just emphasizes the great need that we have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves, right, as parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. That's good. Let me ask you this question. The next one is if there's a friend that, of a family who's fostering or has adopted, and what can they do to support a family, but then especially if that family is really experiencing some struggles and it's evident that they're experiencing some struggles how can people around them support them well one thing that i mentioned earlier is that families tend to start isolating themselves when they go into crisis i mean when they're going through the adoption process everyone knows (laughs) and it's it's a joy and and the church is surrounding them maybe they've done some adoption fundraising and so there's all these great things happening 
But then all of a sudden when, when things aren't going well or the child is misbehaving and the parent is stressed because they don't know how to meet that need, um, and when I say misbehaving, <clears throat> misbehaving, I mean the child is responding through whatever coping me- mechanisms they learn coming into the home. So all of a sudden you have a child in the church, and I'm just using this as an example. It can be school, it can be playgroup, it can be anywhere, right. Right. that suddenly uh, the parent is embarrassed. They don't want them to go to their church programming. They don't want anybody to see this meltdown that's happening outside the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um getting called out of um, whatever group that they're in, whether it's the church service or Sunday school or community group, in order to address their child's behavior. So there's all these things happening. So one of the first things that I always say is let's, let's again, equip the system. It goes back to those systems, right? So we want to make sure that caregivers and church ministry leaders and church um, lay leaders understand what trauma is and understand the needs of the families and support the foster care and adoption groups. I go into foster care and adoption groups a lot in different churches. And the one thing that I've noticed is that they're, again, very isolated groups. Mm. <laughs> a little bit of recognition maybe on Orphan Sunday or, you know, right. adoption month. But otherwise, they very much operate in, in isolation from the rest of the church. And I think those are some things that need you know be worked on within the system of the church. But I think when families feel like regardless of what they dish out, regardless of how terrible their own behavior or that of their child's, um, that they're still going to be loved and accepted in that community, there will be healing from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the places that I want to start is in those bigger systems. And if the family lacks those systems, if they're starting to withdraw, I always want to pull them out and find a, either a new system they can connect to or somewhere where their emotions and behaviors are safe. And that's not an underground Internet group. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there because I know so many of them exist. Oh, yeah. And, that and that always just and I hear families say that all the time. Well, we were talking to people online, and I'm like, please immediately stop that. <laughs> I, I hear that often too. Parents just wishing that that they had a group of other parents who maybe are experiencing some of the same things that they are, where they can come and just you know talk about you know what would you do in this situation? How how did you handle it? How did you grow from that? And I think really especially just feeling like they're in a non-judgmental safe environment where they can really just be open with how they're feeling and and not feel you know shame because we all have those days where you know it's like i don't know what to do with this child Mm -hmm. and i need help and sometimes it's hard to just say that out loud and so i i I think that that's really valuable too is, is to offer those those group groups for parents to be able to just open up and and support each other and, and, you know, listen to what each other is experiencing. I also think we're hesitant to say things to people. Mm -hmm. And um, especially when it comes to parenting, it's such a deeply personal thing. But I can't tell you how many calls I get from well-meaning friends or family members who will say, I just need to give you a heads up. I, I witnessed something the other day that just struck to the very core of my heart. I realized in that moment 
that parent literally appeared as though they hated their child. Mm -hmm. And so I get those calls a lot. Now I can't turn around and just call up the parent and say, hey, I understand you may hate your child. (laughs) But at the same time, I think think we need to empower one another to lovingly step into that and not feel a need to back away. Because sometimes it's stepping into that moment to say, I I can see where your heart is and I can see what your needs are. How can I help you? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, we we just owe it to one another. I mean, I I, I think, again, I'm I'm a huge proponent of attachment and nerve. So when you're looking in crisis, it's just disarming their fear and making a connection. So I'm hearing a couple of things I wanted to you know, restate one is that you do see a lot of value of families who are either fostering or have adopted getting together on a regular basis to have that kind of safe place where they can just be honest, you know, about what's going on. That's one thing, right? Um, and then another thing I'm hearing is, is that it's also important that they have a support system that's outside of that, that they don't isolate. Like I think it was Amy that was saying, you see a lot of times in churches or, or groups that they, they have that kind of support with other families that are like them, but they become kind of isolated as a group as well. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes, absolutely. And and some of it may be self-sabotaging. If they see everybody, if there's a group of teen parents and, and nine of them have this just ideal adoption, mm-hmm. you know, it's just going just beautifully. <laughs> so we know half of them are probably lying, but... <laughs> Okay, and then, uh, but but you see that one pull away because mm-hmm. they're they start that is even a, a issue of resentment for that parent because mm-hmm. they're like, why is my situation going poorly? You know, I I gave this to God, I wanted this to be a certain way, and I can't figure out why He's done this to me. There's a great book by Pam Parrish. Do you know who she is? Just the name I ever. She's thought. read. Um, it's it's called Ready or Not, and one is a thirty day devotional for families thinking about adoption, and the other is called Battle Weary Parents. It's Ready or Not for Battle Weary Parents, and it takes you through kind of a spiritual journey of being in crisis. Hmm. So I highly recommend that book. Um, but she just t- touches on some things that I think. There's not a family in crisis that can't relate to it. She does not shy away from the hard issues. That's good. That's a great resource. Another question I had in relation to what we're talking about right now is, do you think it's possible or recommended that family and close friends educate themselves about what it's like to parent children that come from foster care or adoption? Absolutely. (laughs) You're like, uh, was that a... That was a duh. Okay. No, we were just looking at each other, kind of trying to figure out, you know, it, who wants to. I, I don't think there's a single question you can ask that we don't feel like we could probably expand on for about 45 <laughs> minutes. So we're trying to figure out the best way to live at this. But, um, yeah, and I feel like whenever you, when you're going through the adoption process, I'm amazed at how many times we, we invite grandparents to mm-hmm. trainings, cousins, friends, uh, siblings. So we want everybody to come who, in order to, for one thing, they're going to have to probably be approved by this, right. the agency as a respite or babysitter or mm-hmm. child care provider. And mm-hmm. so we want them to have the same training. Um, and then also because, again, it builds that network of support for that family. I think one thing that you said earlier, though, and I think where resources are limited, and I think agencies have a responsibility in this, too. We need to look at what resources are there for that family when we're approving them. 
And so I don't let anybody off the hook internally either mm-hmm. because we cannot be placing a child in a community where there are no resources. And because, and, and not that I don't, and I'm, I'm saying that in the sense that if the family can access resources, absolutely. But that needs to be done on the front end because so often on the back end, I'll say, you know, it'll be a, a child who's Spanish speaking. So you, in your community speak Spanish that you can go to what therapist? And they're like, I have no idea. Right. And to me, that was something that I look at and, and kind of look at with the agency and go, how did did we miss this? Mm-hmm. You know, how did we miss this for this family and this child? And it's such a disservice not to have those resources in place. Mm-hmm. So that family and friends that you're talking about also educating themselves, to me, that's building that that network yeah, that's mm-hmm. you know, prior to placement. Yeah, no, I, I agree that that's... That's key to offer everyone that, that will be in that child's world and, and supporting the family, having that training and education is is really important. And I think, you know, as a whole, it's important not only to have that support from family and friends, but to be sure that, like Amy said, with, with a Spanish-speaking therapist, you know, that you're finding not only a therapist, but your um, pediatrician is, you know, competent. And knows appropriate, you know, adoption language. I think too. That's the another um, exceptional thing about TBRI is they're now going in and um, helping to train educators in that. So when all of that, you know, beginning of the school year stuff is coming out, asking about, um, you know, family history and genealogy, teachers are kind of aware of of what that feels like and and looks like for children who you know, are coming that are in foster care or so it's it's I think it's it's slowly changing, but it's but that's what's really, really is equipping everybody in that child's life mm-hmm. to to be supportive. So oh, that's good. Yeah, I've seen the same thing and, and it's it's good to see the different domains, the different people who are, are touched by this being more and more informed. Mm-hmm. Talking about working with uh, families you know, supporting them, families that are in crisis. And, of course, you know, the sad thing is that it's it's a way too high statistic of how many families end up either disrupting or in disillusion of their adoption. What do you see happen in a family? What I remember, Amy, you kind of sharing was there's kind of like this path that families will go down, parents will go down uh, yeah. to that point. Do you want to share with that, you know, just kind of like touch on those a little bit? And, and it's not my uh, – this is actually researched mm-hmm. – um, so these these steps have been around for a long, long time. Um, you know, the first part of this is kind of that diminishing pleasure, and we kind of talked about that, where all of a sudden the parent starts to be feeling isolated. They start giving up the things that they wanted for their family. And there's also just this loss of the dream. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this envision of what life would be like, and then all of a sudden you're starting to really grieve that it's not going to be like that for you. And so there's this this overall diminishing pleasure that starts with when when you start heading down that road. And it doesn't mean that you start feeling that way and it means you're going to disrupt. It just means that's the first step towards that process. And then there's blaming the child and others. Um, you may have somebody that is really not only angry with the child, everything was fine until they got here or... 
I can't believe that they're, um, you know, just just looking at me and smiling as I try to, you know, impart important things to them. Or they're maybe blamed with the agency. They didn't tell me, you know, what everything that they knew. They I feel like they hid things from me. So there's there's that step as well. But underneath both of those, we have to go back to that connection and that neurochemistry because what's happening is that the it, it's starting to be survival. Mm-hmm. That they're getting to that place where it's like you know I'm not going down. My child will go down before I go down. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it's it's really literally that life jacket of support, and you you feel like if I don't get uh, my head above water, then I won't survive. And so there starts just to be this overwhelming flooding of emotion. And then the next one, which I think is kind of a critical turning point, is this going public. Mm-hmm. There may be a few people that you can confide in when you're feeling angry or when you're blaming your child. And then there's still this feeling in your heart that, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this or doing this. But when you start to go public, you're testing out. You've gotten past that point, and you're testing out these beliefs that um, I'm going to see how everybody around me responds to this child. Right. So you may say something like, um, oh, I can't, you know, the other day he did this and I can't believe he did that. Or there's just some kind of vocal statement to a group. And you're trying to test out what it would be like. And so many times, unfortunately, Kenneth, I can't tell you how many times this happens, that somebody will say, and it might even be a pediatrician, will say, <laughs> I think you just need to take the child back to the agency. Oh, wow. And um, and they're hearing these statements and they're hearing so many, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Mm-hmm. But really, they need to be heard more than anything in this point. And so I can't stress to you that that going public, if you're thinking that you need to start talking to other people about it, that needs to be in a therapeutic environment. Uh, and I just, you know, my hope is that everybody will start therapy long before they hear <laughs> So we can see what their normal looks like. Right. So when they're telling us how unusual this is, we can we can actually have that comparison. But that going public is key. And then there's that turning point where they're really, they're talking about disruption. They're talking about, I can't do this much longer. Um, and that compassion piece is usually pretty, pretty much gone. And then there's the ultimatum. Uh, and there's several different families. And I think when people think about an ultimatum, they're thinking of something that's really concrete. But I think there's several different ways that I see this. And so sometimes a child may be told, if you do that one more time, you're leaving this house. I mean, that's what we have when we think of an ultimatum. I also have the parents that say, you know, my child wanted to leave. My child's told me several times that they want to go back to their previous foster family or that they really don't want to be in our home anymore. So we told them that, you know, it's their choice. They don't have to leave. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with both of those statements is they tell the child they're not worth fighting for. And that's that's the heart of that. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be careful. One may just mean be more permissive. One may be more authoritarian. But they're sharing the same message. You know, and so what a child really needs to hear at that moment is you're not going anywhere. No matter what you do, you're ours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think at that point and that ultimatum, that's just not, those words aren't being said. For that reason, there's just kind of an, a deeper emotional breakdown at that point. And then there's the decision to to disrupt. Now, will you give me, will you just grace me with a couple of minutes to talk about rehoming? Absolutely. 
Okay, because there's this, you know, we've every agency has policies and procedures, and and your child came came into the home through those child placing agency requirements, and um, your child needs to leave the home under those same requirements. Rehoming is this underground process, and I, I would say the Department of State is really doing a lot to try to minimize that. I think um, churches and community groups are doing more to educate their families. And I say that churches and, and, and because most of those that are rehoming have been a part of the evangelical community. And so there are families that that's what we're finding, that there's this network of support that's kind of underground for these for the evangelical families, because many of them were called to adopt, but not all of them were really equipped. Yep. And so it's not, and there's no blame in that statement. It's just where it was. Mm-hmm. There was increase of evangelical families adopting, and now there's an increase of evangelical families in crisis, but they don't know where to turn. And I just can't stress enough how important it is to turn to an agency that really children are getting lost in in, in systems. They're getting further abused. They're getting um, traumatized by multiple placements. And so now we're starting to see those kids come to us um, many who are now over the age of 18 that have um, that have really been victim to this rehoming process. Mm. No, I appreciate you um, touching on that. And my heart resonates with yours. So, yeah, yeah I want to, uh, first of all, I'll just thank you so much for just pouring out your experience and, and your heart about this. And again, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you as a parent and you know, my heart breaks for those that, that are really struggling. And we have moments when we struggle and I'll probably touch on this when I wrap up the podcast in more detail, but you know, my wife and I, you know, we, uh, anytime that we hit a pretty hard bump in the road, we sought out counseling, we sought out, you know, support and help. And would you think that that's, would that be, or would it be something else would be your, your top thing that you would recommend to families to do instead of waiting? You know, like you said earlier, I loved it how you say call me before you lose your compassion is there a concrete suggestion or recommendation that you would give us as families i i think there's that but i think if every family should have a a go-to therapist i mean you mentioned several when we first started talking and i think every community has just some excellent adoption competent therapists now not every therapist is going to be the end all be all and know everything but even in moments of crisis uh, you know we will pull together and we'll make sure as a team that we're really meeting everyone's needs in the best possible way. I'm limited in what I can do. Jennifer is limited in what she can do, but when we're working together as a team to really meet a family in crisis, we're, we're stronger as a result of that. But I think every family needs to have that go-to person before they even enter into an agreement of placement because you need to have that connection you need to have that trust that somebody is going to hear you and not try to tell you who you should be but try to strengthen who you are mm, that's good jennifer you want to chime in on that I, I i agree with with what amy is saying i think having having um a therapist to kind of to really work through things in those times of crisis is is really valuable and important and going back to just that compassion component too i think so often just like we look at message messages behind the behavior with children it's it's the same thing you know with with us as parents i think 
where there's anger, there's often grief and, and something underlying that. And so if you can explore that with somebody that you feel safe and comfortable with to do that, I think it really um, just just changes your, your parenting perspective as a whole and, and helps you to be able to connect not only um, with your child, but, but, you know, with your spouse or partner. So it's important. That's good. Well, like you said, Amy, a while ago, we could talk for hours about these kind of things. Um, but I want to respect your time and thank you so much, Jennifer and Amy, for coming and, and sharing with us here. And I'm going to, if it's okay, on my website, on the in the show notes, I'm just going to point people to you guys as a resource and to be able to, especially if they're in any community where Buckner is, if they want to reach out to you guys. Is that okay? Absolutely. And you don't have to be a Buckner family. We're okay. serving all families, so there's not that requirement. Good. Good to know. Okay, thank you very much, and it's good talking to you. Thank you. I hope you take to heart what Amy said once or twice in the interview, and that is do not wait to call someone for help after you have lost compassion. We really do need to reach out to those around us to walk along with us in the journey that God has called us to, especially if you're an adoptive family, adoptive parent, and allow others to to pour into you and to hear what you have needs for and help meet those needs. None of us are alone in this. None of us never struggle. We all struggle. I just encourage you, I urge you to do that and take to heart what Amy and Jennifer shared today. If you want to get the show notes and also if you didn't catch some of the resources that they referred to in the interview, I will have those on my website in the show notes for this podcast. And you can go straight there if you're not already on the website. And that is kennethacamp.com slash episode 32. That's kennethacamp.com slash episode 32. And that's where you can get uh, the show notes and also some links or information on some of the resources that they mentioned in the interview. I appreciate Amy and Jennifer taking time to join me here on His Hands, His Feet. And I'm glad that you were here too. Until next time.